You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. The Catholic Psyche Podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended to take the place of medical or mental health treatment, therapy, or diagnosis. You should always consult a trained mental health or medical professional for such treatment. Welcome to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. This is Cherie. This and is Deacon, Sarah. And Deacon Basil. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now this time around, we, we're just going to talk over each other instead exactly. of waiting for the other person to talk. Um, but I, I think this, today's topic is really exciting and I think is prevalent in, in all of our lives, at least at some point of time. And it was Sarah's idea. So I think, Sarah, do you want to kind of give a cap of what we're going to talk about today? I would love to. Thank you. So a few weeks ago, I was watching Mass, and the priest threw out this phrase in his homily, um, Christianity is about dying to self. And I had this reaction that I've had many times when I've heard that phrase. My thought was, what about people who don't know themselves well enough to be able to die to themselves? Is it possible to not have a self to die to? Or... What about the concept of self and people who struggle with the, themselves and can't die to themselves or don't know how to? And I yeah. threw that out to the group and everyone responded really positively. And I'm really excited to have this conversation with people who yeah. like get both the, the psychological and the spiritual messiness yeah. of what it means to have a self mm-hmm. at all. So. Everybody decided, uh, thought it was a great idea, and then Chris had to go help someone move. But that's okay. I'm not yeah. bitter. I'm not bitter. <laughs> like, he was supposed to show up as of, like, 20 minutes ago. 20 minutes ago. Yeah, what a... Yeah. <laughs> Rude. We, we told him we weren't going to give him a hard time, but we'll give him a hard Obviously time on, we lied. on the air. Yeah. So, <laughs> Come on. so I, I think this is probably one of the really difficult things about um, the psychological and the spiritual life, um, this idea of self-knowledge, because one of the major problems with any practice, um, is that whether it be psychological or spiritual is that it can get perverted and it can be, um, it can, it can be subverted into a very sort of pathologic way of viewing, um, ourselves or, or anything else. And this is, this is what I think surprises a lot of Christians as they grow in the spiritual life is that you can be doing all the right things, going to mass every Sunday, if you can, and you're not on a pandemic, uh, you can go to mass every Sunday. You can go to Holy hour for an hour every single day. You can pray every rosary that has ever been uh, written and you can still go to hell because you did the wrong, uh, you did it for the wrong reasons and that you can actually make it, you could be worse off for all of those spiritual things because you did them for your own vainglorious um, or egocentric view. And I think that that's really problematic because it's not a clear cut, okay, this is right and this is wrong. And if I just do these things, it's, it, you know, I'm done. Here's the roadmap to salvation. And it's, it's really quite difficult. And I think that shocks people when, when they kind of grow to that level in the spiritual life. And I think the same thing with the psychological life as well. Yes, if I do an hour of meditation every day and then I go for a run and I do my yoga and if I keep my dream journal every single morning and then I have bullet points and I just keep my schedule perfect and I'll never have a mental breakdown, right? Right. Right. Well, I, I, I think it comes back to a sense of control. Mm. Like we want to feel like we're in control of our salvation. We want to feel like we're in control of just how we're going to feel 
and in our future. And so it's kind of almost nice in a way to have like these clear cut things of like, well, if I do this and this and this and this, I should be good versus it's actually not really in my control for the most part to to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's already given to us. It's like, yeah. And, and the gospel is one of emptying oneself and a reliance on God rather than a reliance on on oneself. Um, St. Gregory of Sinai, um, who, if you haven't read St. Gregory of Sinai, it's totally understandable. He's an Eastern saint, but he's spectacular and everybody should be reading him. He has this great quote where he says, become what you are. Find him who is already yours. Listen to him who never ceases speaking to you. Own him who already owns you. I love that phrase. Yeah, own him who already owns you. And I think, I think the entire concept is really self-knowledge is about finding the Holy Spirit in yourself. Yes. Um, I forget who said this. Maybe it was one of my theology professors. Uh, but the concept of like becoming a saint is becoming the person who already exists as the ideal in God's mind, like the ideal that God created you to be. Mm. Like become who you were already created to be, like to fulfill that ideal and image is what it means to be a saint, to be holy, to be whole. And I think a lot of people struggle with that because they don't have a good concept of themselves, what they actually like and dislike, what they actually feel called to by God in the mystery of who it is that God is and their place in it. And they have a conflict of wounds and desires. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you mentioned, Sarah, was um, they don't have like an idea of what they like or dislike. Mm -hmm. And I find that to be the case in the idea that they self-sacrifice so much that they never even turn to themselves and ask themselves of, of what, what do I want? What do I need? What do I even like? It's all about just sacrificing and giving to another person and then just completely lose sense of self. Mm-hmm. Because to do anything for myself would be selfish, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is false. Or, or being in an abusive um, relationship or mm-hmm. environment where you're told or put down essentially. Yeah. That's exactly what I was like going to say is, is two weeks ago when this is published two weeks ago, uh, we did a a podcast on codependency and you know, that codependency really at its core is me becoming dependent on the other person being dependent on me, I guess is you you can listen to the podcast if that's really (laughs) interesting. But I I think what's interesting about it is that if you have self-knowledge, whether that be spiritual, psychological, or or even physical self-knowledge, if you can have that level of self-knowledge, then that is an inoculation in some ways against codependency because you can advocate for yourself at a certain point. And codependency with God is a problem, it can become where I, God is somehow dependent on me, right? Uh, in my thinking, God's never dependent on us, but that's how it can kind of be seen. Or codependency in relation to another person, maybe in a marriage, can be problematic. And if mm-hmm. we have self-knowledge, then we can view ourselves rightly in the view of the other person and really enter into something like a really healthy marriage. I mean, Sheree, this is what you were kind of talking about earlier uh, before, mm-hmm. before we started recording, was this idea of how self-knowledge in marriage can become problematic. 
Yeah, and and assuming we know the other person as well. Mm. And and not letting them actually guide our view of them. And so I typically find this in in relationships in the idea of you know, that person is just wounded or that person, you know, has hurts and that's what's getting in the way and I just need to self-sacrifice for them. Mm. And and then and then they'll be good or then they'll want me or then they'll, you know, all, all of the, I guess, maybe issues or things that get in the way of connection with a couple will be gone if I just continue to sacrifice. And sometimes that's not really the case. Yeah. And, and sometimes, in fact, it just makes things worse. If, mm-hmm. you know, if I am a psychologically if I don't have my own psychological place and I'm, I have no self-assurance or self-awareness, then what can happen is I get into a marriage or a relationship of any type for that matter. It could be a work relationship for that matter. It could be a clerical relationship. I mean, whatever it might be. Um, if I don't have an identity of self outside of that relationship, no matter what it is, that becomes really problematic. Um, so, you know, first and foremost, when I describe myself, and I'm sure we can, I'm sure, mm-hmm. I'm sure everybody can define themselves in different ways, but it, the way I define myself is that I'm a child, a son of God, and then I'm a married man, you know, to yeah. my wife, and then I'm a father. Um, now, all of those are important pieces of who I am, but I am all of those combined, not just one of those. I'm not just a father, I'm not just a husband, and I'm not just a son of God, but I'm all of these together. And if I have that self-awareness, then I don't go seeking my identity in any one of those to the extent where all the others fall apart. It reminds me of morning glories. You know the little flowers, morning glories? They will crawl on anything. Sorry, I thought you were referring to the EWTN show, and I was like, what? Are, what? I, I, I thought you were referring to, like, Marian Consecration. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> so many morning glories. What are you are talking what? about, Sarah? Oh, no, I've been gardening a lot lately, so uh-huh. that's a different topic, but a lot of plant metaphors have been floating around my brain. But morning glories, they're this viney little plant that crawls on everything, but they aren't able to like be tall on their own. They have to wrap around another plant or a post. They mm-hmm. have to have something to support it. Um, and in the process, they'll usually kill whatever they're climbing on. So it, that kind of reminds me of like this invasive, I need something else to grab onto because I can't support myself concept that we've mm-hmm. been talking about. And I'd love to relate that back to attachment. And that sounds like really anxious attachment style. Mm -hmm. And, and probably we could even relate it back to the idea that, right, if I'm anxious about the relationship, if I'm anxious about whether or not you love me, well, then I'll just give more sacrifice more and to to get more of a response. Yeah. I need to show that you love me. I need to make sure. I need to make sure. Like I need to... I need to do more. I need to say another novena so you answer this prayer. I need you to tell me what to do. So I'll say 15 rosaries. I need you to tell me what to do in adoration. So I'll, I'll just journal until something feels right. Like it's from you and not from me. But I don't even right. know what that is. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Or I'm going to flip through the Bible until I find some, you know, some out of context. 
scripture passage yeah. that relates to me in some way. No, I, th- I think that's I think that's kind of what I was referring to with the kind of yeah. pathologic way of viewing um, the spiritual life is that it's <laughs> it's me having to sort of claim me putting myself and my own desires and my own will and my own thoughts onto God and saying, well, that's the Holy Spirit. And I think that's, I think that's problematic. I think it's that kind of controlling idea instead of that self-discovery. Um, I once had someone tell me that they, uh, that they, that they were doing a novena to St. Therese of Lisieux. This was very mm-hmm. popular in the, uh, in the mid two thousands. I'm doing a novena to St. Therese of Lisieux in order to find out my vocation. Um, and, there's nothing wrong with praying novenas from time to time, but the problem is, is that you're looking for an exterior sign of like roses showing up one day um, for the sake of understanding what should be the most deepest aspect of who you are, which is your vocation. Um, and so looking for those exterior signs, instead of looking for the interior knowledge of who you are and what actually makes you happy and what makes you not happy and what your deepest desires really are, that's what self-knowledge is, and you can't find that regardless of if St. Therese of Lisieux sent you flowers, which I don't even think she would. I think she would rather you battle it out psychologically at yourself because that's what the spiritual life's all about. <laughs> um, but that's what it's really about. It's not about just kind of controlling God or the saints. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, I think that what you were saying there, Sheree, actually really speaks to me is that when I'm looking for other people to tell me who I am and what I am, yeah. that is at its core the anxious attachment style. Um, yeah, because absolutely. I can't have that sort of interior sense of self in order to then present mm-hmm. to to other uh, to, to to the world. Yeah, that sense of self and that sense of security is based off of other people's reactions to me. And when I don't feel like I'm going to get that, I get really anxious, and I try to continue to, and continue to do things to get that. Absolutely. And and there's all sorts of um, classic sort of psychological psychopathologies that are associated with anxious attachment. And there's all sorts of things. So not to say that this is just simply a spiritual issue. In fact, it's very much a psychological issue in, in many cases that mm-hmm. does have a spiritual uh, side to it, certainly, but that there is actually a psychopathological um, world that this that, that you might be inhabiting. And that might be where therapy can come and help with that anxious attachment. Um, but I think the other side to it is with that anxious attachment. I'm sorry, I'm just kind of free association at this point <laughs> here. But um, the other side about this is that, you know, I'm reminded of that Gottman, um, that Gottman, uh, oh, I don't think, I think Gottman uh, didn't do it, but he uh, he claimed, he uses the research and it's at the point where it becomes like his, uh, <laughs> you know, how he does that. Uh, but he says, you know, it's not so important what I think of the marriage. It's not so important what my partner thinks of the marriage, but what I think my partner thinks of the marriage and vice versa. And what's important about that is, you know, so I could think everything's great. My partner can think everything's great. But if I think my partner thinks everything's terrible, then I'm going to have everything fall apart um, mm-hmm. because I'm going to act as if it's as if everything's terrible. The problem with that is you have to have the self-awareness to know that you might not be seeing things accurately mm-hmm. right from the get-go. And if you don't have that, then you, it doesn't matter what kind of intervention or what kind of attachment we're trying to work on. If you don't have the awareness that you might not be seeing things quite correctly and you have to have the self-awareness that there's days where you can't see things correctly, anything we might do in a therapeutic session is a waste of time. Absolutely. It reminds me of um, a couple's thing I learned in college, and probably, like, I haven't used it in a really long time, but it's where... (laughs) where you would take the couple and like in one of the initial sessions you would sit down and you would have a scale of like zero to 10 
of how you view where you're at in the marriage and how well it's going. And then you would answer it for yourself. And then you would answer what you think your partner would answer. And then you would compare it afterwards of like the actual reality of it. Oh, that's um, brilliant. Yeah. I mean, so that kind of is brilliant. like exactly just taking what you just said and just kind of proving to you the couple of like, you don't have an act, like your husband thinks that your marriage is going much better than you predicted that he'd, you know, view it as. So it's a very interesting activity. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one of my favorite um, kind of things. So I, I do a, a typical process of, a, of an intake with a couple together and two individual sessions or one individual session with each <laughs> of them. And it's always funny to hear the other person's view of it because they view that the other person views the relationship much worse than the, than 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 the other person really does. So it's really like, wow, you think that the other person thinks the marriage is worse off than it than 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 they really do. Um, so it's, yeah. it's 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 very interesting. But what is a challenge is when one partner views the marriage as horrible and there's so many things wrong, and the other partner is going, I, we're have we have a great marriage. Fine. I don't know what yeah I thought, yeah I, yeah no I what I, you're I talking about. I always yeah. look at that because um, I do a, a, a questionnaire on relationship satisfaction and I'm always thrilled if they're either really high or really low together. But if you get that disparity, it's like, okay, how can I, how can I kind of yeah. talk about this? And then it's helpful when it does that because, you know, if it's really bad, if both partners say, yeah, it's bad, then at least there's agreement about that and you can move forward. There's the self-awareness of the marriage yeah. um, that you can move forward. So. I think this is a, I think this is a really important question of of how does one um, grow in self awareness? I mean, if if, if it's important, um, then how does one grow in it? I, I remember um, I remember it's like I didn't just Google search this five minutes before we started talking right and found a great list. <laughs> you of, know, but, um, oh good, okay. Saint, um, I remember reading somewhere. Uh, Saint Isaac <laughs> oh, yes. the Syrian said, uh, "He who knows his own sin." is higher than the man who uh, resurrected the dead by his prayer. That's not the one I was thinking. The one that I remember in particular was the sick who is familiar with his illness is easily cured. And the one who acknowledges his pain is close to healing. So if this idea is not just that I have this awareness of myself just because it's great, it's actually moving me towards healing itself. So how does one achieve that awareness of themselves if, if it's something that they struggle with? That's a great question. And I'm reminded of the, Bolton, um, the venerable Fulton Sheen quote, um, the only way God can get into some hearts is to break them. Mm. Especially mm. with that, that pain piece from St. Isaac. Um, I think that's one of the fruits that can come from suffering like knowledge of self and pain and awareness. Um, and I think it requires intentionality and focus on those, those pain points, if you will. Yeah. Um, for example, if you had a shoulder that kept dislocating and you kept ignoring it, it's like, oh, it's fine. It always does this. This is normal. But then everyone else around you is like, that's actually not normal. That's not good for you. I wonder if you should go see a physical therapist and or maybe stop doing those things that dislocate your arm. Mm -hmm. You have the choice to either listen and pay attention to what people are telling you mm -hmm. in a good way 
or you can ignore it and be like, this is just who I am. This is fine. This is not comfortable, but I can deal with it. Or you have that, that conflict of receiving information from good relationships or not, or rejecting it. And I think finding those relationships that you value that are honest and trustworthy is important. Paying attention to yourself is important and how you receive feedback or how you receive just anything. Like, does the sunshine hurt your eyes or does it make you smile? Do rainy days bring you peace and comfort or do they make you depressed? Just yeah. pay attention to the questions in life. <laughs> what I hear is mindfulness and mindfulness mm-hmm. practices, definitely. I think journaling comes to mind when I think of growing in self-awareness of just sitting with yourself and just writing whatever comes up and kind of just having that as like a guide. Um, but I, I think too, when I think of moving towards that sense of self-awareness, I find that there's so many dark parts of people that when they even think about it, they're like, no, I can't go towards that. That is way too scary. Like if I let that in, if I let the fact that I've really been struggling with depression or anxiety or these things, if I really become aware of that, I feel like I'm going to just be consumed by it or Mm -hmm. I'm not going to know what to do with it. And so people stay away from self-awareness because it just seems way too scary. Well, I think that's yeah. the, the psychoanalytic sort mm-hmm. of notion of uh, the shadow, particularly the Jungian shadow. Um, for those of you that might not know what the shadow is, I'll explain it really quick. It's the, it's the reality that I can do anything, anything that, that a person can do, no matter how evil or wrong it is, I could do it. Um, and at least for me, I mean, it's been a great meditation to say that, that there is nothing that could happen that I could not, there, there's no sin in the world that I could not commit if I, if I didn't have the opportunity and the means to do it. And the, the reality is, is that once you can start to view yourself as the, being able, capable of the most horrific things that a, that a person can do, then you can be on guard to make sure that those other things don't happen as well. And Jung said that if you can view the shadow then that's when psychological growth really begins. And, and so I think what you're saying there is, uh, Shri, that whenever, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not trying to say this is what you're saying, but <laughs> what I'm hearing you say is yeah. um, that there is a massive amount of psychological growth that can come by looking at the darker side of you and not just pretending like it doesn't exist. Yeah, and I think just acknowledging that you're afraid to look at the dark parts of yourself is a step towards growth anyway. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, Sarah. Yeah, I've been reading um, some old fairy tales, and old fairy tales are dark, but there's <laughs> there's a theme of if you if you look out into the night, then you'll see what's actually there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you if you keep refusing to look out there, and if you keep refusing to look at the monster and to actually understand mm-hmm. it, then you're in greater danger of being consumed by it than if you actually go and confront the monster. Yeah, absolutely. And that doesn't mean the monster's not there. I mean that it still is and it still could consume you and it still could be scary, but at least you know that. Um, Yeah. 
Um, and I'm going to just pose this question because actually somebody asked me this question probably in the last week. And, you know, they, they recognize that fear and that hesitancy and that avoidance of moving towards it. And the question was, was, you know, Sheree, how, what are the, like some of the first steps that I can take to just move towards it? Like I, I, I want to start not ignoring this part of me. Um, any thoughts? Well, what people I, can do. I, I, I mean, it depends on what the monster is, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> um, because, for example, I'm, I'm just thinking from a pure psychological perspective. Mm -hmm. The monster could be uh, a phobia or a fear, right? So, for example, I'm afraid of I'll, my favorite example is snakes. You know, because <sighs> I can't stand them. Um, I, I talk as if I would actually treat someone with a snake phobia, but I, I, I couldn't because they freak me out too much. Stop looking like so snakes. deviously there, Sarah. Okay. Anyways. I like snakes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the idea is, is okay, well, let's, the, the sort of classic behavioral yeah. response would be, okay, start, start, let's start with the most safe way of desensitizing you to the fear. So for example, if you're afraid of snakes, let's imaginatively pretend that there's a snake. Well, let's think about snakes and let's go watch snakes on YouTube. And then let's go stand outside of a reptile shop. And then let's, let's just stand inside mm -hmm. of it right by the cat, by the check stand or something like that. Okay, let's go stand next to the tank with the snake in it. Okay, let's put the snake on your head. You know, I, I mean, it's just this like slow sort of desensitization process. Sheree, that face is, uh, uh, maybe we could do this later when you're, when you're back in terrible desensitized. I'd be in the same boat. <laughs> no, I'll go to like, like my, my thought is, you know, there are some healthy fears and responses out there that, you know, that should not be gotten rid of. I, so. I agree. I agree. Well, okay, but it could okay, be flying as well. Like whatever the fear sure, might have, be, whatever yeah. the monster is. But um, like another example, like psychologically, like sure. let's say that um, your monster is depression, um, and like you have an outer appearance of being happy all the time, and your life is together, and nobody really knows how miserable and sad you are on the inside. Mm -hmm. like that that dark part of you that just actually hates your life and doesn't like who you are or who you pretend to be um i think a very simple step is just acknowledging that you cry alone at night it's like i've been having a rough day just saying that and just the slow acknowledgement of Bringing in some rain clouds with your perpetual sunny disposition. Mm. It's just letting, letting the cycle of who you actually are and what you actually feel start to mm -hmm. be incorporated into mm. your consciousness instead of trying to shove everything down into the dark place where you don't want to pay attention to it. It's it's funny that because I thought I thought where you were going to go with that was um, <laughs> some kind of therapeutic relationship or at least acknowledging it to the other person, um, and then you were and then you were talking and I realized really that is a secondary step to admitting it first and foremost to yourself. If you don't admit that you are having these experiences, then what are you going to share with someone else? Oh, um, fine. everything's think, fine. Exactly, exactly. So the uh, the acknowledgement that that one has these feelings first and foremost can, and then perhaps sharing them either professionally or even just with friends uh, could be discussed in a spiritual direction session. Could be discussed in a psychotherapeutic session, whether it be counseling or therapy yeah. or whatever. It or might anonymously be. on the internet, just saying I'm having a rough day and this is yeah not fun. 
Yeah. But I think that's the process of acknowledging the monster um, quickly. Mm -hmm. um, Well, quickly. It's the process of acknowledging the monster so that you can then see where it really is looking out the window in the, in the darkness. And I think Mm -hmm. think that's kind of the first thing. I think really the kind of concept for me is this idea of how do you come to find um, self-knowledge, perhaps of the darker side, perhaps of sin, perhaps of joy and experience with God. And, and for me, I think that that just insight of St. Ignatius of Loyola and his examine prayer um, is just so good good because you, you, the problem with, sort of just a straight examination of conscience, which is the typical classic Catholic practice at, at, at evening prayer or night prayer, rather uh, Compline is you're just looking at what you've done wrong. You're not acknowledging where God was present. And, and in some ways what I've done, right. And most of the time, at least when I've done an examination of conscience, I don't really do anything with it after the fact. It's like, uh, I sinned here, here, and here. I really should stop that. You know, the examine prayer it's like, okay, I was present with God here. I wasn't present with God here. What am I going to do tomorrow in some small, infinitesimally small way to make it better so I, I can actually work on it? And I think that's where self-knowledge slowly becomes because you're seeing the positive and the negative as it develops and grows. Um, so that's mm-hmm. what I would kind of say as, as one of the principal uh, ways. Mindfulness practices, whether they be classic mindfulness or even Eastern Christian mindfulness uh, practices, all of those tend to be um, really quite good at sort of just noticing where I am at emotionally because the entire practice, whether it be the far East or Eastern Christianity, it's really about what is the thought that's going through my head. And I'm just acknowledging that it's there. I'm not going to fixate on it, but I'm just acknowledging that it's there. And if I need to return back to the mindfulness practice, then I just return back to it. It's not that I'm going to uh, become overwhelmed by it but you're acknowledging that it's there first and foremost and knowing that you have these kind of tendencies and, and, and processes towards, towards it. Yeah. I, I do want to highlight something in a word you've been using Deacon Basil because, mm. and that was the term monster, like calling mm. it a monster and giving it a name mm-hmm. and whether that's a, a dragon or a beast or a bear or actually giving it a name that that is actually a really helpful tool people can use of maybe describing that part Mm -hmm. and and so that's kind of just another step or another tool people can actually use yeah i love that that idea of externalizing it bringing it Mm -hmm. out of just my head into description into Mm -hmm. something that can almost be described like that it's not it's not me it's not my whole self it's this it's this part it's this yeah monster that I can then interact with and, and come to know and, and approach. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or in a classically sort of desert father Christian perspective, three shows ago, we talked, I talked with uh, Daniel Johnson about this. You could call it a demon in some ways. And I think you have to be careful with that. Of course, listen to the show three times ago, uh, but you have to be <laughs> careful with that. But you're right. It's this external because there are these forces, whether they be psychological or spiritual or emotional, that there are these forces which are bigger than you and I, um, mm-hmm. that do have an effect on us. And I think that, I think that is an important kind of concept to, to hold on to. Yeah. And, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I was just gonna, I would like, I was just thinking about like in that idea of gaining self-awareness and 
in really approaching the self, I find that people who've been severely abused and even sexually abused, like this is a very, very difficult task because especially with sexual abuse that they view themselves and their body as not even theirs. Mm -hmm. and, And there's so much detachment there as a coping skill. And so even, even viewing themselves as something to get to know or a sense of belonging is um, really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. That is a delicate process. And, and I think, I mean, I mean any trauma, but I think mm-hmm. like you said, most profoundly with sexual abuse trauma, yeah. um, it, it really does rip the sense of self away. I mean, I'll just use the example of a car crash. Like yeah. I am no longer the person who can trust in my Subaru, for example. Um, I, I can't trust that the other drivers aren't going to, to injure me severely. And that sense of self can, can be taken away in an instant uh, through, through emotional trauma. And I think in some ways, I'm not sure from a brain spotting perspective, but I think from an EMDR perspective, so I assume probably it was taken in advanced uh, with <laughs> brain spotting, but from an EMDR, EMDR perspective, in some ways we talk about giving back the sense of self um, and helping people kind of regain that sense of self from the trauma. Is that discussed much in a brain spotting f- framework? Um, I, I don't think it necessarily in those terms. I mean, it's, it's definitely a focused mindfulness process and people come to gain more of a self-awareness because of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it kind of opens them up to thinking about it in new and different ways than, than ever before in an, in a more complete way as well. Yeah. It's actually a really kind of interesting question then as far as just what trauma can do in the spiritual life. And I, 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 there's this great article by, um, by this psychologist about this kind of concept of trauma and the spiritual life um, and this entire concept of apathia, which is a, comes from the Desert Fathers, actually from my boy, Evagrius of Pontus, um, this idea of apathia. Um, and what it is, is it translates to apathy, but it's not apathy. It's not like I just sitting here and I don't care. Apathia is about emptiness so that the Holy Spirit can come and enter in, which uh, that emptiness... Uh, concept, uh, very, very uh, Eastern in its approach as far as, uh, far Eastern in its approach as far as I am empty so that I can experience the world as it is. Um, and I was just kind of an interesting kind of concept of understanding that in some ways what the way in which I can learn who I am the best is through the perspective of a removal of certain things, whether they be the thoughts or the emotions that are, that are plaguing me the demons as, as the desert fathers would call them or the passions in general, that that removal of them allows me to see who I am and to know that the demons do come back and the thoughts, if you will, will come back and, and, and influence me. So is there a relationship between apathia and kenosis or catharsis? Yes. Well, as I'm sure you know, uh, remember from a certain webinar on St. John Cashin from the uh, Mount Tabor uh, Counseling's uh, Spiritual Classics series, um, yep. catharsis is, according to Evagrius and according to St. John Cashin, catharsis is the first of the three uh, stages in the spiritual life. So you have in, in Latin and the Latin church coming out of, the, out of this exact teaching as well, but you have the purgative, the illuminative, and the unitive ways, right? So in, mm-hmm. in, in Eastern concepts, it would be catharsis, theoria, and theosis, okay, which then the idea of apathia comes, and and I would say self-knowledge, 
purgation is you have to remove certain things and certain certain sins, but I would also say certain patterns of thinking about yourself, maladaptive thinking from a cognitive perspective, poor attachments, maybe from an EFT perspective, poor attachments, you have to remove those so that illumination can take place. And I think sometimes we jump to, well, illumination is where self-knowledge then comes, but I think it's, uh, it's, it, it is actually a process of both catharsis and theory of, of both purgation and illumination is hmm. really where self-knowledge is. I'm curious your thoughts yeah. on that, Sarah. It sounds like pruning. It sounds like pulling out the weeds, again with the gardening metaphors. Um, yeah, it sounds like pruning out the weeds and pulling the things that don't belong so you can see what's actually there and you can see what you're actually working with. I, I think that's true. And I just, I know what uh, Sarah's Instagram, uh, Instagram is going to look like for the next couple of weeks is just or with these big handfuls of tomatoes and things. So, oh, I hate tomatoes, not tomatoes. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm um, sorry. I want to, I'm trying to plant a flower garden. Oh, good for you. So it's very difficult. There are a lot of, it's a lot of crap right now that I'm still cleaning up. Well, yeah, I, think that's I feel a, you, Sarah. That's a uh, perfect, uh, perfect metaphor for the spiritual life. My, my, my least favorite thing is when I've, I've been planting flowers myself. And so I like digging and then hitting a big rock and just oh. getting stuck and can't get it out. And like, why, why does there have to be another rock? Why does it have to make it harder? Well, I think that's, I mean, I think that's true in the psychological life as well. Yeah. I mean, it's a great metaphor mm -hmm. as well that, you know, sometimes you keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper into this, into the psyche and you find more the further you go down mm -hmm. um, another yeah. rock or another issue or whatever else it is. And that's very difficult at times. Um, <laughs> it's like, this is still here? Why is this still here? It's another weed, another group of roots. I have been digging you out for weeks. Yeah, yeah. I've, been, I've been pulling you up. I thought I got all of you. I even put like a tarp thing to prevent you from growing and you're like mulch here. and you're still coming up. Why? It's bloody here, yeah. No. Well, and, and, and it can take years to be in the psychological or spiritual pruning process as well. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I, when I was young, young, when I was a young man, I thought that I could grow a virtue in a couple of months of effort. Well, I'm pretty much back where I started on most things um, in the yeah. spiritual life. And it's just little by little and a reliance on God to, to find that. Um, yeah. Really quick to just kind of just really quick, jump us back. Um, Cherie, could you maybe tell a little bit about self-knowledge within a relationship, how does one develop that? Yeah, so, well, that's a great question. Let me think about that for a second. <laughs> um, right, like even, so when we think about the purpose of marriage, we think that its purpose is actually to help us grow in self-knowledge and to help us grow closer to God and in holiness and, and getting to heaven. And... And so that idea that our spouse is really going to be the person that knows us best, I think the hard part is when, like, we barely know ourselves. Let's face it. We do. We, we barely know ourselves. And it's crazy how another person and our spouse can assume that they know us better than we do. Yeah. Um, and they assume, you know, our own feelings and responses and what they mean and I think that's a trap relationships can can get into and so I do think that couples 
really need to learn not only what we learn in mindfulness and meditation and prayer to continually examine ourselves, to continually be curious and, and develop that self-knowledge of we need to do that as a couple too. Yeah. Like, and we stop doing that. We, you know, we go through marriage prep. We say, yep, I know who you are and I choose to marry you. And then after marriage, it's like, that's it. Like I already know who everything about you and I don't, need to know more, but we need to continue to do that examine even for our, our spouse. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and people change, you know, yeah. so, so I'm not the same person I, w- I was when I got married. Thank God. Um, <laughs> my wife is not the same person she right. was when she married me. And I'm sure it's been the same for you. Um, although yours is much shorter <laughs> um, as far as the marriage, but I'm sure you both have changed in the yeah. last, um, I mean, eight, 10 we months. Had, we've had moves and changes yeah. in jobs and new challenges. So need to check in on that of like, well, how have you changed? Right? Like, right. Where's your emotional state? Sometimes it's referred to, and the names in my model, I can't stand, but you know, okay. They call them love maps. Right. And it's this (laughs) idea of, you know, who am I, um, you know, who am I? And, and, and just checking in on very, very little things, you know? And uh, so it's like, you know, what is my partner's favorite restaurant? For example, you know, my, my, my wife's favorite restaurant uh, when we first got married was probably the, the hole in the wall restaurant fish place we, we got when, uh, when we went to at our, on our honeymoon. Then years later, it became a different restaurant um, <laughs> because of other things we won't go into. But anyways, the idea being that it, it was that it changes and being yeah. able to check in on that is really important. And then that very concept of it's not so important what I think, but it's, what, it's not what she thinks, but what I think she thinks. It's important that she knows that I know what uh, her restaurant, new favorite restaurant her new favorite is. Restaurant yeah. Is. yeah. So yeah. there's all sorts of, of resources like that. I'm sure there's plenty that um, is down in the description. Or there will be plenty down in the description as far as just basic stuff like that from the EFT mm-hmm. model as well. But I think that's, that's really important. Now I'm go ahead, sir. Well, the, the word that you said, Sheree, that really caught my attention was curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Just being curious about the other. It's like, I want to keep getting to know you. Um, Education is really important to me. I'm working on my second master's degree. So like, just to like use the analogy of like, getting degrees, like you wouldn't stop getting to know someone um, at just a high school level or GED um, mm-hmm. if you wanted to really know all of them. Like if you really were studying this person as the subject who is the light of your life and your ultimate love, then you want to keep learning about them. So you would continue and like go on and keep learning and take as much in as you can about this person from every single aspect. That's why yeah. I got a fun master's degree in theology. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. And I, I think when we go into and approach and pursue self-knowledge and take a curious stance that I want to highlight one key aspect that really needs to be there, which is acceptance. Like not only do you have to be curious, but Mm -hmm. for anybody that is going to approach this needs to have that piece of, of self acceptance and in, in marriage as well. So when you are learning more about your spouse or your partner, that you're coming from a curious and accepting stance. And, and I want that to know is who you are, so no matter important. who you are. 
Yeah. And that, that is so important. And that, that doesn't mean that you have to just say, okay, I, I am who I am and I'm not going to change and you just have to deal with yeah. it. But, or, or, or I'm just, I just, the world has to just deal with who I am. <laughs> um, it's not just that. I mean, but what St. Isaac was saying there is he who knows his own sin is higher than the man, excuse me, the sin who is the sick, who is familiar with his illness is easily cured. And the one who acknowledges his pain is close to healing. That if you, if you can acknowledge what is happening for you, then you can accept it and move on. You can't, mm -hmm. you, you have to be ready or though. Accept it and treat acknowledge it. and yeah. treat it. That's a better way to put it. Then, yeah. then you have to, yeah. but you have to accept that you have it and pretending just like, like, like Sarah said a, a while back, if you pretend like you're, you're not, your arm isn't dislocated. Right. It's not going to get better anyway. Right. And, and I think that's important. Like the, that first off, you have to accept it in order to treat it. And, for those who have a really hard time with that, who are going to approach themselves with judgment, mm -hmm. saying, ooh, you're sin, you're bad, or you're depressed, that means you must not be doing certain things, that, of course, why would you want to grow in self-knowledge if you're just gonna judge it? Yeah. And, you just hate yourself. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, yeah. it's, I think it's completely true. Um, unfortunately, we're pretty much wrapping up, but I do want to just kind of emphasize one point. Psychotherapy is a process of self-knowledge. Um, and if it really is something that someone's struggling with understanding themselves or how they're, they operate or what they're supposed to, that is a perfectly legitimate thing to seek a therapist about. I would love it. If someone called up the Mount Tabor line, for example, as long, I mean, as long as we can legally work with them, but I would love it if someone called up and said, I really just want to know who I am in a deeper way. Like that would be a really form of interesting psychotherapy, which is part of what the psychotherapeutic process mm -hmm. has been, has been designed for. And yes, that that's absolutely. really what psychotherapy can be very, very helpful about. I think that's part of what spiritual direction is. And I'm sure that the people at the Lintari Center at the St. John Institute would love to have someone say, I want to know God. I want to know how God is prompting in me. And I want to discover God inside of me. Like, like I want the self-knowledge. I mean, that's, that's what these kinds of disciplines are designed for in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Wonderful. We'd love those phone calls. Love those phone calls. <laughs> love those phone calls. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be so much fun to work with. It's, oh yeah. Yeah. It's such a weird way to say that, but I know, I know. Yeah. But, it's true. So, well, we should probably wrap it up there, but uh, thank you all. This was great to see you all again, and we'll see yeah. you next time on the Catholic Psyche Podcast.